0: All right, we'll let you know. All right. You know, I just want to say too that uh, you guys got a real winner there, Jason. Uh, the apologists from his generation really set a good example for younger apologists like me and 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 Carl <laughs> and Carl Payne. So um, they really paved the way for us. But but j- just in case you think, well, you know, this guy's here um you know he 's got a real angelic tone to his voice, you know so but but maybe he doesn 't know what he 's talking about, maybe he just want chase his friends and stuff. What I did was I asked my staff at the Institute of biblical defense and um I have a one man staff and uh, <laughs> um but I asked them to just to randomly just give me uh, uh an email uh statement from someone who has benefited from the work of the institute and so i want to just read that to you just to show the kind of quality work that we do there and so i've never read this before it's uh bruce from texas says i've listened to your sermons online for years we have you can go to our website biblical defense dot dot com click on sermon audio gives you access to 1500 different sermons and lectures so bruce from texas says I listened to your sermons online for years. I was so happy to see you in person. Uh, you're much shorter than I expected. Uh, so, uh, so we're going to have some we're going we're going to have some changes at the institute. Apparently, um, um, I'm sure the guys are laughing back in Washington. Uh, today, I want to talk about biblical inspiration and inerrancy. Thy word is truth, okay? And um, these are important doctrines. This is basically an overview of uh, uh, what you would get at a Bible college course or seminary course on bibliology, the doctrine of the Bible, what the Bible teaches us about itself. There's Now you can see I'm a tech guy, so my PowerPoint presentations, you're going to see some graphic stuff like that. And, um that is a Bible. If you don't know what it is, you don't recognize it, you need to talk to Pastor Jason and, and your senior pastor real, real quick. Um, uh, but some of the key doctrines in uh, bibliology. First, there's revelation. And this is, revelation is from God to man, God to the human author. Okay, Revelation is when God revealed his truth put his truth in the minds of the biblical authors, okay? He made known his truth. Uh, Inspiration, though, goes from the human author to the paper, to the scroll. And so we have to understand that, you know, some people will act like, well, maybe God revealed his truth to Isaiah, but he made a mistake when he wrote it down. No, the doctrine of inspiration follows after the doctrine of revelation After God reveals his truth to the biblical authors, then God guided the human authors to record his word without error. And that without error part uh, is inerrancy. And we'll talk about this in in more depth as we go through this, but there's a few other doctrines in um, bibliology that I want to talk about. (coughs) Another one is illumination where the Holy Spirit illuminates or enlightens our minds and hearts to understand his word. So if you are a true believer, the Holy Spirit indwells you and helps you to understand God's word. And it's not because God's word was written in code. There are some complicated parts in the Bible, but the basic salvation message, uh, even a kid in kindergarten could understand it. Okay? So the problem is not an intellectual problem, but it's a moral problem. It's a problem of the human heart, okay? I'll give you an example. Uh, my wife and I have been married now for 33 years. Um, I got married when I was six. And, um, but, um, and so over that time period, we've had two or three arguments. And um, so the temptation is when we have an argument... I look in the Bible, and I see. I turn to Ephesians, and it's like, there it is. This is why I'm having problems in my marriage. God's word said, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. If she would just get right with God, things would be great, okay? That's, that's what our, our sin nature makes us want to interpret the scriptures that way, where it's always, you know, oh, now I see why I'm messed up. It's mommy and daddy's fault. And I'm not kidding. I wish I were kidding. I wish this was a joke. Uh, I've counseled guys in their 50s that are just destroying people's lives and their own through bad choices, and they still blame their problems on mommy and daddy. Okay? Um, Now, when the Holy Spirit illuminates my mind, I also notice there's another passage in Ephesians chapter 5. It says, husbands love your wives as Christ loves the church. And, um, you know, I've met a lot of godly Christian ladies who submit to their husbands. When I meet their husbands, I think, wow, she's submitting to that? But, <laughs> but I've, I've met a lot of godly Christian ladies who submit to their husbands. You know, I've yet to, to meet a guy who loves his wife as Christ loves the church. So, so the Bible, James calls the Bible a mirror. So remember, the Bible's addressed to you first. Before you start saying, yeah, that guy's messed up, that guy's messed up, Mm -hmm. you got to admit, you just look at the Bible and say, wow, I'm messed up. I need Jesus, not just for salvation, but for sanctification. And so we need the Holy Spirit, because of our sinfulness and our selfishness, we need the Holy Spirit to illuminate our, our minds and our hearts to understand God's word. Then the doctrine of preservation... See inerrancy, the Bible's without error in the originals, but there can be errors and mistakes in the copies. So I think that uh the Christian church needs more emphasis on the doctrine of preservation that God preserves accurate copies of the originals, that God ensures that accurate copies of the inerrant originals remain, okay. So there's lots of variants, lots of misspelt words by copyists and all. Um, But, you know, 95% of those variants uh, have nothing to do with changing the meaning. And even ones that change the meaning are not from good copies, so it's very unlikely that they represent the originals. And so when it comes down to it, when you compare the copies, over 26,000 copies of either the entire New Testament, or portions of the New Testament, we have about 99.5 percent agreement between the copies. That was Bruce Metzger, a Princeton scholar, who stated that. Now, the five percent disagreement—you know, where it changes the how we would translate it changes the meaning—and it could there's manuscript evidence where it could be the original, but we're not sure. Um, the difference is between the New King James version of the, Bible, of the Bible and the New American Standard version of the Bible. The difference is whether you favor the majority of the manuscripts, which I do, so I like the New King James, or you favor some of the older fragments and older manuscripts that we've been finding since the 1800s, and, um, and then you would favor the New American Standard. So so basically if, if Jason's preaching at one church from the New American Standard and his brother is preaching at another church, um, from the New King James version, um, they're not going to be teaching a different kind of Christianity. It's it's gonna be the same. There's just gonna be questioned as to whether Mark has the shorter ending or the longer ending. Things are bracketed out in the New American Standard that remain in the New King James, okay? And um, So when everything's said and done, uh, because of 99.5% agreement and accuracy between the copies, and because we have so many copies, we can pretty much figure out who got it wrong. So when you pick up a Greek New Testament, um, they'll they'll give you what they think the best readings are, but then at the bottom of the page, they'll give you other variants. And if you look down and at a variant, say, well, there's a variant reading Oh, but there's only one copy, and it comes from the 10th century A.D.? Uh, yeah, I agree with them. They got the right one there. But, but somewhere on that page, either in the footnotes or the top, is the original word of God. If God's going to guide human authors to record his word without error, he's also going to ensure that accurate copies of the inerrant originals uh, remain. Then canonization. The canon is the list of books that belong in the Bible. And now we're getting a lot of people say, oh, you know, these guys were just in it for political power, Peter and Paul. Political power? What are you talking about? Peter and Paul didn't get rich by becoming Christians. They got dead by becoming Christians, okay? But there's, there's all kinds of people that, oh, yeah, there was this conspiracy theory that they were just in it for the wealth. And that's why the early church... Refused to have the, the gospel of Thomas or the gospel of Mary or the gospel of Peter included. Look, these these writings were more than 100 years, some of them 200 or 300 years after Jesus walked the earth. earth. They taught heretical Gnostic teachings, which considered the God of the Old Testament an evil God. They hated the Old Testament. That's a whole different religion. And everybody admits, even Elaine Pagels, who's in love with the gospel of Thomas, Even though she's a feminist, and the last verse of the Gospel of Thomas says that if a woman wants to uh, enter the kingdom of God, she has to first become a man. I don't think that's going to further the cause of women's rights, but, but whatever the case, even Elaine Pagels admits Thomas never really wrote that. It was written way too late by a forger, some guy claiming to be Thomas and claiming that he had access to the secret teachings of Jesus, the secret knowledge, the, what the Greeks would call the kenosis. Um, so, how, how are, Why are we confident that our thirty-nine Old Testament books and twenty-seven New Testament books are the books that belong there? Okay, and that's canonization. If the Holy Spirit's going to go through all the trouble of guiding human authors to record His Word without error, He's also going to go through the trouble of guiding. Ancient Jews for the Old Testament and the early church for the New Testament. He's going to guide them so that they would recognize which books belong in the Bible. Okay. And um, we've got to understand God is still at work in our church. He's still guiding us. He still, Jesus said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. So, um, uh, you know, how many letters did Paul write to the Corinthians? The answer is three or four. Because you read First and Second Corinthians and First Corinthians, he's answering questions. It's always hard to figure out, well, what's the question he's answering? But he's answering questions that they asked him in a previous letter. Okay? And so some think there's two extra letters. Some think one of the two letters was added to one. So, it's a, so there's either three or four letters. So apparently when the Corinthians received the very first letter that they got, they said, look, get everybody in on Sunday. We're going to read this from the pulpit, and then we're going to burn it or we're going to hide it. Don't copy this. Nobody else needs to see this. Whereas with what we call First and Second Corinthians, they said, boy, even though Paul's slamming us, um, we not only need to read it from our pulpit, but we need to make copies and send them to other churches. You know, like C.S. Lewis said, Aslan is on the move. Um, God's doing it again. God's continuing his love letter to us. And, uh, um, so, you know, so God guided the early church. And, like, for the New Testament, there would have been three tests that you would have to pass for a book to be included. Okay? Don't forget, you're including your writings with the writings of guys like Moses from the Old Testament and Isaiah and, um, First, it's got to have apostolic authorship or authority. Was it written by an apostle, appointed directly by Jesus, or at least one of the colleagues of an apostle with his authority? Okay? And um, secondly, is it in, in agreement with previous revelation? So the Gnostic writings would have been rejected because it was too late. All the apostles were long dead. And then, number two, it rejects all previous revelation in the Old Testament. It's got to be in agreement with it, because God does not change his mind. He doesn't lie. And, um, and then, number three, it's got to be an edifying for the entire church. So, apparently, these, uh, this other letter or letters to the Corinthians uh, would not have been edifying for us. And when you read First and Second Corinthians, you don't have to have a big imagination to where you can figure out why that might be the case. I mean, these guys were involved with every every sin. If he got if Paul got real specific on those sins, it might be something they need to hear, but not us. But first and second Corinthians, it's edifying for the entire church. Um so and by the way, um, why in the world would they accept the heretical Later writings, the Gnostic writings. Um, by the way, I tested this chair before I brought it up here, and because uh, I'm a professional at what I do, you know, I'm just this isn't no fly-by-night guy. I test these things, you know. So I'm, I've I've had experience in the past. I've learned every once in a while I'll bring a chair up stage that my legs are too short to get on, and that could cause. That could cause uh you know a twenty minute delay in one of my talks, and uh, usually some big elder comes and picks me up and push me and uh, and then i get you know then that's my manhood's been questioned so i mean but um but I received psychoanalysis for it, so I'm doing good now but um um now, if I could read this from the chair, we're, we're going to be doing good here. So, but can I say, why would you accept all these heretical writings written more than 100 years after Jesus walked the earth, right? Uh, I believe you can, you can trace all 27 books of the New Testament to what I call the big four. Paul said, look, I got my apostleship directly from Jesus in Galatians 1.1, and I got the right hand of fellowship from the three pillars of the Jerusalem church, and that was Peter, James, and John. And even the books that those guys didn't author, it was their colleague, like Matthew. I believe the Gospel of Matthew was the first gospel written, and he would have written it while Peter and James were leading the early church in Jerusalem. So I think you can trace all 27 books to the authority of Paul, Peter, James, and John. Let me tell you something. The only way it could get better than that was if Jesus decided to write himself, okay? But um, let's face it, God becomes a man, he's probably going to use scribes, okay? Um, Okay, so, uh, but canonization, and then then I would say anointing, that, you know, the Holy Spirit, we need a little bit stronger doctrine of anointing. the, uh, The Holy Spirit fills and empowers his people to preach his word. That's so why never before I come up to preach, I pray. Cause you know, I got saved when I was 21, okay? I have misled a lot of people in my life, probably not just before I got saved, but probably some after I got saved. Not that I know of. I'm sure I'm going to find out. And, um, and so, but God calls fallible men to preach his infallible word. And um, so I pray that the Holy Spirit anoints me to proclaim his truth. And and so, but God only does that for preachers. That's the good news. Only preachers have to worry about preaching God's word and be anointed. The other side of the coin is God's called us all to preach. So it doesn't have to be in a church setting. When you're sharing your faith with your friend, you're preaching. Now, is it Holy Spirit anointed preaching? Or is it some lousy preaching, you know? Um, but we want the Holy Spirit to anoint us. Uh, to preach his word so that we don't lead people astray. So now the doctrine of inspiration, I want to focus on that and inerrancy. And inspiration, God guided human authors to record his written word. Uh, 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17, Paul says this, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Uh, the word in the Greek means God breathed. So it's like the words are coming directly from God. And it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So uh, every word in the 66 books of the Bible, it is all inspired by God. It is all uh, the word of God. Look at what Peter says in 2 Peter Chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. And uh, Peter says this, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture... We often think of prophecy as predictions of the future, but no, prophecy just means the Word of God is being proclaimed. Okay, So the whole Bible is prophecy. Know this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation... For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were, moved by the Holy Spirit. Now, keep in mind, he's not talking about interpreting the word of God. He's talking about writing the word of God. So when he says that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation, what he means is that if you read Plato or Aristotle's works, that's their private interpretations of reality. When you read the Bible, like for instance First Peter and Second Peter, you're not getting Peter's interpretation, his own private interpretation of the world. You're getting God's truth about reality. Okay, and um, so God guided human authors to record His written word. Uh, all Scripture is inspired by God, both Old and New Testament. Second Peter 3, Paul says, you know what? Watch out, because there's unlearned men who don't understand some of the complex teachings of Paul's writings, and they distort those writings just like they do the rest of Scripture. You know what Peter's saying about Paul? He's taking Paul's writings, and he's putting it on the same level as the writings of Moses and Isaiah in Daniel. He's calling it Scripture. Paul, 1 Timothy 5.18, I believe he's quoting, he quotes, he says Scripture says, and then he actually quotes from the Gospel of Luke. Okay? Um, so, uh, while these guys were still alive, they knew it was God's word. So, we, so we often think that uh, the books of the Bible, we didn't figure out which books belonged in the Bible till some council in 370 A.D., let me tell you, when the, the Holy Spirit guided the readers, the recipients of the letters, to recognize immediately. So whether it was written to a, a sl- slave owner named um, Philemon or uh, to the church at Corinth, they would recognize immediately if, if it was God's, you know, if God started writing again and they need to make copies. Um, and so what we have here... is that God guided human authors to record his written word, that's inspiration, but then inerrancy, totally without error. And what we're talking about there is in the original manuscripts. Let me say this, too, about inspiration. There are portions of the Bible where God dictated it to the biblical authors. So every once in a while you hear Isaiah say, Thus saith the Lord, and then he quotes God. So Isaiah heard God's voice, and he just quoted it. Most of the Bible is not dictation. God didn't dictate it, okay? Most of the Bible will be closer to, like, Luke, who does historical research, or, like, Matthew and John, who were I, eyewitnesses I of this, and then the Holy Spirit moves within them to record what they experienced or what they learned through research to record what God wanted written without error. And God did not eliminate the personalities or the vocabularies of the authors. I'm really glad that uh, um, Greek scholars will kind of water down some of Paul's imagery because, you know, when it comes to false teachings, he could sound like kind of the, even though he was a brilliant intellectual, he could sound like the Donald Trump of the apostles, you know. If he thought, you know, rejecting God's revelation of himself in nature to us, he'd use words that we get our word moron from that. When Whenever we translate something that Paul says as garbage or trash, um, Paul's saying something other than garbage or trash. I mean, um, so now the Apostle John, who was once the son of, uh, of thunder, him and his brother, you know, these guys don't agree with us, Lord, Do you want us to... Ask God to pour fire, devour them with fire from heaven. Jesus called them the sons of thunder. As John got older, all he wanted to talk about was love. So still, it's God's truth, but you see John's personality and vocabulary. You see Paul's personality and vocabulary, okay? See, it encourages me. Now, God's not going to inspire me to write a 67th book of the Bible, Okay? The apostolic age is is done, okay? The authoritative witnesses are done. But what it does mean is that when God uses me, he wants to use me. Not the old me who's dead, but the new me, the new creation in Christ, and he wants to use you. And he's given you experiences even before you were saved, like Paul's trading under the Gamaliel before he got saved. He's going to use those things for his glory. And um, so, uh, so you know, in one sense, God wants us to be like Jesus, God wants Christ in us to be worked out in our lives. But in another sense, He doesn't want you to imitate other people. He wants you to be yourself, who you are in Christ. Okay, and um, and so God used uh, Peter, Paul, John. He used their vocabularies and their personalities. Now, uh, inerrancy says that the Bible is totally true in all that it teaches. It's totally without errors in the original manuscripts. And this is why I think we need uh, a a lot more emphasis on a doctrine of uh, the uh, preservation of accurate copies than we have today in the church. Because, you know, if you don't have original manuscripts, we don't have original manuscripts from anything in the first century A.D., okay, including the New Testament. If you don't have the originals, then who cares if they were without error when we just have copies, and many of those copies might have errors. And so we need to understand if God's going to go through the trouble of making originals without errors, he's also going to see to it that he's going to preserve accurate copies um, of those manuscripts, those uh, manuscripts without errors. But technically, inerrancy is in those uh, original manuscripts, but God has saw, saw, uh, he sought to it that we would have accurate copies. So when we read what the Bible teaches about itself, uh, Proverbs 30, verses 5 and 6, every word of God is flawless. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Don't add to his word, lest you be proven a liar. I mean, the Hebrew word there for flawless is the same word. When King David didn't wear Saul's armor because he hadn't tested it. So it, it brings out the idea of something that has been tested and it has passed the test and proven itself to be without flaw and to be blameless. Now, can you imagine? Hebrew language paints pictures with words. Can you imagine if we translated every word with a, in its fullness in English? We'd have like a paragraph for each word. And uh, we'd never understand the, the scriptures. But Proverbs 30, verses 5 and 6, every word of God is flawless. Don't be, Joe, Joe Smith, don't be added to God's word. Reverend Moon, don't, don't add to God's word. And um, if you really want to do a study on what the Bible teaches about the Bible, read Psalm 119. That's the longest chapter in the Bible, um, about 170-something verses. But it's all about the word of God. Now, the biblical authors are good authors, so you know, they don't want to just keep calling it the Word of God over and over again for 172 verses. So it's, it's the Word of God, the statutes of God, the precepts of God, the law of God, you know, and, um, and so they break up the monotony, but it's all talking about the Word of God, and you'll see that the Word of God is absolutely true. And First uh, Samuel 15:29, He was the glory of Israel, does not lie or change his mind. For he is not a man, that he should change his mind. Uh Titus 1 2 says God cannot lie. There's certain things that God can't do. God can't sin, he can't fail, he can't lie. Okay? And um, um and so if the Bible is the Word of God, by definition, it's got to be true. Okay? So inerrancy tells us that the Bible is true in whatever it teaches. That means uh, not just spiritual and moral issues, but also in historical and scientific issues. I don't think God looked at Charlie Darwin and said, wow, if I I had just had a a college biology course from Charles Darwin, I would have written things more accurately in the science area and the scriptures. Look, God created the universe, okay, um, he knows infinitely more about science than Darwin or anybody else. He's not going to get his history messed up. And so, in the originals, the Bible is true, and whatever it teaches, no matter what's—it's not a—it's not technically a history book or a science textbook. But when it speaks on history and it speaks on science, it speaks correctly because God is the author. God cannot err. And then, as I mentioned. Numerous times we have accurate copies of the inerrant originals. So because of this, Christians should not transform historical narratives of miraculous events into mere figures of speech, into metaphors. And this is is actually going on right now. We have some leading uh, evangelical thinkers who claim to believe the Bible is totally without error but they're classifying the Gospels as Greco-Roman biography. And the Greeks and the Romans, when they wrote a biography of a king or an emperor, they would often uh, dress up the birth and the death of the king by throwing in metaphorical miracles, symbolic miracles, that they never expected their readers to believe. Okay? So we actually have... Some theologians, New Testament scholars, and apologists who claim they believe the Bible is without error, but they're turning a lot of the gospel miracles into mere metaphors. So when Jesus was uh, dying on the cross, the saints didn't really rise. Um, When um, the coin found in the fish's mouth for Peter and Jesus to pay their taxes, that didn't really happen. Uh, The wise men never really visited Jesus Um, That was just uh, exaggerating, uh, the shepherds visiting. Let me tell you, that is not the doctrine of inerrancy. And it saddens me because some of my closest friends are doing this kind of thing. Um, With the saints rising, there are like seven or eight different historical events that are listed there, and that's one of them. How come the other ones are historical and yet that one is a metaphor. That really doesn't make sense. And um, and so we need to be careful of that. When Jesus speaks in parables, that's a parable. When he uses, uh, speaks in allegories, when he uses figures of speech, we don't believe Jesus is literally a lamb. But when he's called the lamb of God, it's because he would die as God's sacrificial lamb on the cross for our sins. We're not waiting to see a literal beast with seven heads and ten horns coming out of the sea. But when you read the book of Revelation, you find out it's talking about a global end-time government with demonic rulers ruling over the world in the last days. So you look for the literal meaning behind the metaphors, but do not turn historical narratives into uh, uh, symbols or metaphors. Christians should not turn the Genesis uh, uh, creation and flood accounts into ancient mythology. We now have guys who say they believe the Bible is God's word without error, but the first 11 chapters of Genesis is just mythology. Some of these guys deny a real historical Adam and Eve. They deny a real fall. Now, if there's no real historical fall, I don't know why we need a real historical savior, okay? Um, and these, what these guys are doing is they're trying to blend evolution um, with God. And so they're saying, look, no, God's not telling us how He created it and all. Um, what's going on there? Every ancient culture had their own myth, their own mythology. And God said, okay, well, then I'll give the Jews my sacred mythology, but it's not really true. And you're not supposed to take it literally. I think we need to take creation by God literally and the flood literally. Now, I myself, I favor, I have my own reasons, some biblical, some philosophical, some theological. I favor the young earth position that God created in six literal days. Most of my philosophical and theological colleagues, they favor the old earth creationist position. And we can argue all day about that. But once you start saying there's no literal Adam and Eve and that God used uh, evolution because the first 11 chapters of Genesis um, is just really mythology. You're doing damage to the biblical doctrine um, of inerrancy. You know, if that's mythology, then what else is? Maybe the virgin birth is mythology as well. So I don't think we should go down uh, that path. We should look for the actual meaning behind figures of speech. We see metaphors, symbolic language, parables, allegories, Look for the, the actual meaning behind the figures of speech, but we must not turn literal passages into symbolic ones. Okay. Now, let me say this. Every once in a while, Jason and I might be discussing a passage, and we might come across one passage where we say, no, I think that's symbolic. And I said, no, I think that's literal. And you know, And I'm not talking about that, where you might disagree on one particular passage here or there. What's going on now, though, is we're coming up with an entirely new way to interpret the Scriptures, which gives a license to turn historical narratives into mere metaphors whenever it's convenient for the scholar. And that's, uh, that's very dangerous. Uh, so we don't deny the figurative language in the Scriptures, but when God's Word is speaking literally, we've got to accept it for what it says, but here's the principle I use i try to I try to interpret everything literally until the context forces me uh, to to interpret it symbolically, okay so uh like New Jerusalem coming down from heaven to earth, okay it's only like as wide and and half as wide i mean what 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 it's about the size of half of America. It's only 1,500 miles long and 1,500 miles wide. Well, there's not room for a lot of people there. So I'm starting to think, well, maybe that's symbolic. But then I find out it's 1,500 miles high. So if you just have one floor every half mile, you've got not only enough room for every believer who ever lived, you also have enough room um, for the, all the non-believers who aren't going to be there. But what I'm saying is there's, there's plenty of room. So because there's plenty of room, I say, you know what? Maybe I'm an idiot, but I'm going to interpret that literally unless I see more evidence uh, to interpret it in a symbolic fashion. So that's the general rule. I think you can be pretty safe if you attempt to interpret everything literally until the context forces you uh, to view it uh, as a symbolic speech. Now, what, what did Jesus teach about the Bible? Now, you can look up these these verses when you get home. It's all in your notes there. But Jesus said that God's word is truth in John 17. In John 10, he said the scriptures cannot be broken. In Matthew 5, uh, he basically, and I'm just going to kind of uh, uh, paraphrase it here, but basically, even the dotting of the I and the crossing of the T is correct. Even the parts of the letters are let alone the words themselves. In Matthew 15, verse 3, uh, Jesus said to the Pharisees, why do you break the commands of God, talking about God's commands and his word, for the sake of your tradition? Okay? Um, I'm not Roman Catholic, but I will say this. Sometimes we Protestants act like God hates all human tradition. No, God doesn't. Jesus celebrated... uh, um, the Feast of Hanukkah. Nowhere does the Bible command the, the Jews to celebrate the Feast of Hanukkah. That was a human tradition that the, the uh, going to celebrate the Maccabees, um, defeating the Syrians, and Antiochus Epiphanes. And so God is not against human tradition unless the human tradition contradicts the Word of God or pushes us away from the Lord Jesus. But the Pharisees had human traditions that contradicted the word of God. Instead of taking care of their mother and father and uh, honoring their parents, they would say, Corban, that money is dedicated to the Lord. And, but it, was a, it gave them a loophole so they didn't have to take care of their parents when they got older. And, um, uh, and, and so, so Jesus is saying, look, if God, if God says something in his word, that has the absolute authority. And if you have human tradition, you better, you better test that human tradition with the word of God. If it doesn't pass that test, you need to reject it. Now, when you get home, if you get a chance to read in Matthew 22, that passage, the Sadducees were temple priests. They only accepted the first five books of the Bible because all they cared about was their careers. They did the temple sacrifices and all, and that's all spelled out in the first five books of the Old Testament. So they didn't need the other 34 books of the Old Testament, so they didn't, didn't respect them. They denied life after death and a future bodily resurrection of God's children. Okay? So Jesus is left with the difficulty of trying to prove life after death and bodily resurrection of the children of God from the first five books of the Bible. Try doing that when you get a chance. It's not that easy. Okay, uh, but they tell him, they're trying to stump him. They're saying, look, a guy gets married to a gal. He dies, and, and, and she has no children. Our tradition says then her brother, his brother needs to marry her to bear children, to bear a son, to carry on his name. But he dies without having a child. She goes through seven brothers. They all die. None of them have, uh, she doesn't have a son by any of them. In the resurrection, whose wife will she be? And Jesus is like, man, G- Jesus wrote the book, and he's like, man, these guys, they don't even real- they don't even understand. So he said, you don't even understand the power of God's word. So said, in the resurrection, we'll neither marry nor be given in marriage. We'll be like the angels in that respect, you know. So all, all I know, me, my wife and I won't be, won't be married in heaven. Um, I'm going to hang out with her every, <laughs> you know, we're. We're, we're best friends next to Jesus, and, um, but, um, but the sexual union, you know, won't be there. And um, uh, so Jesus said, you don't understand. We'll be like the angels in that regard. But then Jesus said, well, you guys know, you Sadducees know, because they don't believe dead people, they don't believe exist, they don't exist anymore. So Jesus said, well, you know that God is the God of the living, not of the dead. Well, they would agree with that. They said, yeah, of course. We've been trying to tell that to the Pharisees. He said, yeah, but God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's quoting when God spoke to Moses from the burning bush. This was several hundred years after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had died. Yet God said, I am, present tense, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not I was, but I am. So in other words, since he's the God of the living, not of the dead, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were still alive hundreds of years after their death. And so then the, Pharisees, the Sadducees didn't want to talk to him anymore. By the way, um, you guys would have a better time at, there's very few things I can say this about, but you'd have a better time at one of my debates than at one of Jesus' debates. My debates last two to three hours long. Jesus' debates would last like two minutes. They ask him a question. He says, "All right, I'll answer your question. You can answer mine." He asks a question. They huddle together. They don't know how to answer it. They can't answer. They're they're gonna fail either way they answer it. So he says, "Okay, well then I won't answer yours." And then they walk away. And it's just like that's it. Two minutes. And um, um, and funerals. Uh, it, I'm telling you, if I preach a funeral, okay, you're pretty safe. The dead guy is staying dead. So so. Um, you know, so you get all these people, that are getting up there. They don't even like the guy and they're saying nice things about him. And then Jesus shows up, ruins the funeral, raises the guy from the dead. And it's like, you know what? Ten years from now, i got to say nice things about the guy again. <laughs> um, so, um, so, but whatever the case, uh, Jesus bases his whole argument on the tense of the verb. So what he's basically saying is, not only are the words, every word in the scriptures, the word of God and true and without error, but even the tense of the verb. If God says, I am, he's talking present tense. Okay? And, um, you know, every once in a while, people want to make fun of evangelicals and say, you're a fundamentalist. Well, I'm kind of okay with that because it looks like Jesus was a fundamentalist. Now, there's... Fundamentalism, rightly understood, is a pretty good thing. Now, there are some fundamentalists that get on my nerves, but that's a whole other issue. But the fact of the matter is, Jesus—the way Jesus viewed inerrancy—you know—made the Billy Graham's and Jerry Falwells of this world look sloppy. Okay, Jesus had a very high view of inerrancy, and um, what did Jesus teach about that? Was in the Old Testament. What did Jesus teach about the New Testament? Well, it wasn't written yet. So then he didn't say anything about the New Testament. No, he said a lot about the New Testament. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. This was before audio recording. It was before video recording. The way way you preserve teachings is usually in writing. Sometimes they would memorize oral teachings. Uh, But it was usually in writing the way the Old Testament was recorded. Jesus said that the Holy Spirit would guide the apostles into all the truth. They were to make disciples of all nations and teach them everything Jesus commanded. Well, how are these teachings going to be preserved? Well, Jesus said the Holy Spirit would come, the Comforter, who would guide them into all all the truth, bring to the remembrance all that Jesus taught them, and uh, would even teach them about future things, so that in Acts one eight they would be his authoritative witnesses throughout the world, okay so you come on a scene you know fifteen hundred, sixteen hundred seventeen hundred years later, like Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism no i 'm going back to the authoritative witnesses, and Jesus said he would preserve his teachings through them through the power of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is basically saying the Old Testament is the word of God without error, and I promise you that the Holy Spirit will guide the apostles to record uh, the New Testament without error as well. The logical argument here is, number one, the Bible is God's word. Number two, God cannot lie. He is truth. He must tell the truth. God cannot lie. Therefore, God's word is totally true totally whatever to say that the Bible is God's word, but it contains errors. It makes me wonder what, what what do you mean by God? Okay. Um, now I'll just close with some evidence and then maybe we might have time for a few questions, but just going to give you some quick evidences for that. The Bible is God's word. When God started writing the old Testament, he had an advertising campaign. When he started writing the new Testament, he used that same advertising campaign. Okay, you know, when Ford's going to come out with a new car, they they do all this, everything. When God's going to start writing, he lets you know. Signs and wonders through Moses, the the ten plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, it's pretty obvious Moses is God's man. Moses is God's uh, spokesperson. Okay? Every once in a while somebody says, no, I disagree. So sons of Korah, they disagree, the earth swallows them up. I get the hint. Moses is God's man, okay? Uh, And then from there on, it just takes a recognized prophet to continue God's revelation. Then you get to the so-called 400 silent years in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and then all of a sudden, God is on the move again. And This carpenter from Nazareth is raising the dead, giving sight to the blind, the deaf here. And then... After he dies on the cross, rises from the dead, and ascends to heaven, uh, now the apostles are doing signs and wonders, okay? Uh, You know, God still does this to a certain degree when missionaries go to foreign lands. See, we don't deserve miracles here in America. The Bible has already been tested and has proven itself. Because our founding fathers applied biblical principles, that's why we're so prosperous and so spoiled today. Okay, um, but in some countries, they never heard about Jesus or the Bible, and you get Baptist missionaries who don't even think this stuff happens anymore. They end up leading a whole tribe to Christ because they cast seven demons out of the shaman or the witch doctor, okay? Um, and uh, But that's what God did uh, there to let people know, hey, uh, these are my authoritative witnesses, and... Um, and I am writing scripture uh, through them. So God's stamp of approval. Uh, John 7, 17, Jesus said, look, if, if you desire, if you're seeking for God, you'll hear my teachings and know that they're coming from God. Okay. So if a person is really seeking the true God, we read the Bible, and something deep down inside tells us this is God's word. This is God speaking. This is not just mere men. This is God that is speaking now, Satan has counterfeits here, so Mormons get a warm feeling in their in their bosom. Well, all I could tell is you could heal that archeologically check out the Book of Mormon. a little bit of archaeology will show them uh, it's just indigestion. The Book of Mormon is not God's word. Muslims will say, if you read the Quran, okay uh, but they claim you know in the original Arabic you'll know that uh, that Allah is speaking. You'll know that God is speaking. Let me tell you. If your God thinks that Miriam, the sister of Moses, is Mary the mother of Jesus, if you think the, you know, 16, well, the thousands of years of Bible chronology were all in the same generation, if your God doesn't understand Bible chronology, your God's not my God. And I don't care how many buildings you blow up. I don't care how many people you kill. You know, I'll look a Muslim right in the face and tell him, my God's bigger than your God. My God's the true infinite God. And um, But the Bible is self-authenticating. You read it, you realize, you know what? I'm getting advice from God right now. Um, the fulfilled prophecies, hundreds of prophecies about Jesus, empires, countries, cities, events. Not all these prophecies have been fulfilled because some of them are about the second coming of Christ. But but there are hundreds of prophecies that have already been fulfilled that lets us know uh, the supernatural nature and divine origin of the Bible. It's supernatural wisdom. I don't have time to get into this, but you start to realize they make statements Scientifically, thousands of years before science proves certain things, and uh, you know this is why biblical counseling, counseling people from the Bible, is so successful, because the author of the ultimate author of the Bible, God Himself, really understands human nature, really understands what we're going through, and He tells us that He's the only only real solution uh, to our problems, uh, telling us what evil is, and then giving us the solution to the problem of evil. And you can talk, philosophers can talk for hours, and I often do, about the problem of evil, but it's more than a philosophical, logical, hypothetical problem. It's an existential problem, a problem of human existence. It's a real problem. Real problems necessitate real solutions. God would not have written the Bible if it wasn't for the fall of mankind and the problem of evil. The Bible is God's answer to the problem of evil, and you can answer that, the problem of evil, The real problem of evil in one word. His name is Jesus. The lion of the tribe of Judah and uh, the lamb who was slain, uh, the king of kings and the lord of lords. So the supernatural wisdom contained in the Bible. It's uh, number five. It's positive impact uh, on mankind. Those who abolish slavery and promoted women's rights, and built hospitals and orphanages, our experience with freedom, the advances in knowledge and technology. Uh, so much of this is, so, is biblically based. And so the positive impact of the Bible on mankind. It's the, if God wrote a book, you'd expect it to be the number one bestseller of all time. And the Bible is. But you would also expect Satan to hate it, so you'd expect it to be burned more than any other book. And there's been more copies of the Bible burned than any other book as well. Um, it's supernatural unity. you got dozens of different authors over a period of about 2,000 years, yet there's common themes throughout. Like they're just continuing the same book. Why? Because of the divine author. Ultimately, you know, there's dual authorship, God writing his word through human authors, but ultimately God unifies the whole thing. Um, and then the strongest evidence that the Bible is God's word Jesus, who claimed to be God the Son and proved he is God the Son by rising from the dead, performing miracles, living a life without sin, and fulfilling prophecies. Uh, Jesus, who proved himself to be God the Son, taught us that the Bible is God's inerrant word. And, um, and whatever Jesus, since he is God, teaches is true. If he taught us the Bible is the word of God, then the Bible is the word of God. And... Um, so in conclusion, Isaiah forty verse eight, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. As the as the the years go by, you know, I've been on this planet for more than half a century now, and I just praise God at age twenty one I accepted the Lord because uh I would not wanna have to go through life. Some many of the old testament saints did have to. But I did we don't have to go th- have to go through life without the written perfect word of God. So uh, so I don't know if we have time for questions or five minutes. Okay. So if you have a question, I guess if you raise your hand. Yes. Basically, God inspiration teaches that God guided human authors to record His Word in the originals without error. There's no guarantee that copyists might misspell words and all. Misspelling. There's misspelling of words, but then then there's a, okay. Here's one that Bart Ehrman tries to destroy your faith with, and I think it's Mark one forty one, something like that. Um, Jesus healed a leper. Some manuscripts said out of compassion. That led him to heal the leper. Um, but we found some old fragments that, that could possibly represent the original that said he, did, he healed them out of anger. Maybe because of the disbelief of the people. Does that do anything to our faith in any way, shape, or form? You know, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask him, Jesus, did you heal the leper because you were angry or because you had compassion on him? But the fact of the matter is, my Jesus is still the same Jesus. Uh, The the difference between the two, Bart Ehrman acts like it's either uh, a reliable New Testament or just throw the whole thing in the garbage can, and he suggests you throw it in the garbage can. He attacks Christianity. In reality, it's the difference between the New King James Version of the Bible and the New American Standard Version. It's do you favor the majority of the manuscripts, those readings, or some of the older fragments and older manuscripts that we're finding. So, you know, John seven fifty three to eight eleven about the woman caught in adultery, um, many of the older manuscripts don't have that. So the New American Standard brackets it out. The NIV will remove some passages to the bottom of the page. Um, the New King James just leaves it in there. And so if if Jason and his brother both, you know, if one was preaching from the New King James and the other was preaching from the New American Standard, you wouldn't, because they love God's word and they handle it accurately, you're not going to have two different religions there, you know. Um, But some think that the the longer ending of Mark belongs there. Others think it's the shorter ending. So there's only... uh, Basically, what I'm getting at is when you get to what they call meaningful, viable variants, um, differences in copies that, are, you know, probably 80 to 90% of the difference are just spelling errors, and where the English translation would still be exactly the same. I mean, if you say Jesus loves John, there's something like 12 to 16 different ways you could write that in Greek. But guess what? You'd translate it. Every way you could write it in Greek, you would still translate it, Jesus loves John. and uh, But Bart Ehrman acts like we should have skepticism towards the New Testament. But uh, uh, but when everything's said and done, Bart Ehrman's mentor, Bruce Metzger of Princeton University, said that the 26,000 copies of the New Testament we have, we have 99.5% agreement. What he's talking about is he, we can tell the spelling errors, stuff like that, but that 0.5%, that is not the difference between a Bible we can trust and no Bible at all. It's the difference between the New King James Version and the uh, New American Standard Version. So um, so basically what I would do is everything Bart Ehrman tells us to try to destroy our faith is found in the footnotes or the margins of our English translations, the newer English translations. And um, so what I would do is get a New American Standard and start looking at the passages that they bracket out, okay? And, and that's where the debate is. Um, but um, I have a stronger doctrine of the preservation of scriptures, so I go against most of my former professors, and, um, and I don't agree with the vast majority of New Testament scholars. I favor the majority text, um, I mean, there are hundreds, if not thousands, of differences between some of the older, like Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, and uh, it seems to me the majority text got to be the majority text because the church leaders throughout the centuries knew um, which copies were reliable copies, and they just kept copying those. And um, um, but the idea that you know we can go to some copies and find out that Jesus. Never really claimed to be God or didn 't rise from the dead that's just that 's just plain baloney um, so no no core doctrine of Christianity is affected in one way or another. but see what i 'm saying if god's going to if in, if uh, inerrancy is in the originals, then it seems that God has to guarantee us that he will preserve accurate copies and so that 's what I do. I believe we do have accurate copies. But that kind of reasoning has led me to kind of favor the majority of the manuscripts rather than some of the older fragments that we're finding right now so.
1: Go, All right, very good. Thank you, Phil. Yeah. Uh, this has been just an outstanding weekend, and uh, it's been so great to have you here, Phil and Carl, who was speaking today, and uh, Charlie yesterday, and Michael with his testimony. I think one of the one of the takeaways for me, where I've been really blessed by this too, is how um, each one of the speakers has a different personality. And style and temperament and how God used each of them to minister to us. And sometimes, you know, you'll hear things and you'll connect with one person or the way one person said it. You know, I think of that with the New Testament. If we had known Peter and John and James and Matthew and, you know, all of those uh, apostles and their differences or the Apostle Paul and his uniqueness— we would hear that and you get that in the scripture that comes across it's all god's word but god spoke through these different men that he used to communicate his truth to us and that's why it's so important to read it to study it know it what it has to say and then today carl's message i just thought was so practical on how do you deal with the world of flesh the devil spiritual warfare and just a very comprehensive way of looking at the things that God has given to us and the directions to fight that battle in each of those areas. So we are blessed. Let me just close our time in prayer and then we'll be on our way. Father, thank you for this uh, feast we've had as we have been in your word and as we've heard from men that you have equipped and used to train and equip others. And what a blessing it's been. I just have joy in my heart from hearing from you through these different speakers. And now I pray that you would help us, Father, to take and apply this in our life, to use it in our witness, to not only be more confident in ourselves in our walk with you and our confidence in scripture, but to be able to answer the questions that others have and to do that with love. And Father, we know that It's a work of your spirit anytime someone comes to know Jesus as Savior and Lord. But I pray that you would use us to bear much fruit for your kingdom. And Lord, bless your people today as we go home and into the work week this week. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.